0: On episode 20 of the InsurTech Geek Podcast, talking about predictive rapid flood modeling and hazard mapping with Juliet Murphy of FloodMap. InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific technologies we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. Oh, another day, another week. Now for us it's as we record this it's currently Friday. I think for Juliet I think you're across the date line. I believe it's Saturday for you. Is that correct?
1: It is. It's Saturday morning here, 6:30 a.m. So it's a beautiful day in Australia.
0: Nice. I I'm super thankful for you waking up so early and for coming on a weekend although if you're an Aussie you're used to this very strange Tuesday through Saturday work week that you end up having because of the international dateline. But it's really good to have you on the show from Queensland. I believe you're in Queensland, correct?
1: Thank you so much for having
2: me.
0: And also here, of course, the most interesting man in insurance, the illustrious Rob Galbraith. Rob, how's it going today?
2: Great, James. And yeah, great to have you on. Of course, Julia, great to see you again. So yeah, we were just talking a little bit off air right before we started actually so julia and i have known each other for a few years and we um, got to see each other when i was in sydney for the anzif and SureTech conference in late february before this pandemic coronavirus thing happened yeah so crazy time so it's great to catch up and uh, so glad that we can do this virtually julia great to have you on
1: yes thanks so much rob yeah i was thinking it's, it's great to see you I haven't seen you since before covid so it feels like it's uh yeah great to catch up in this new different world and see that you're still doing okay and, and getting through everything it's um a strange new world we find ourselves in
0: yeah so we're gonna avoid a few phrases today <laughs>
1: Uh-oh.
0: We're gonna avoid new normal. I don't want to hear that one. Okay. We're gonna we're gonna avoid we're gonna avoid extraordinary times. We're gonna avoid that one. We're we're gonna. So I I have a few phrases. We just want to avoid them. I'm tired of hearing them. But and you you haven't said any of them. You haven't triggered me yet. So it's all good. uh right.
1: It's like reverse bingo. I'm kind of feeling nervous. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say it and like
0: yeah. I'm gonna be like and ah. I'm really
1: competitive too. So yeah. I want the points. Like how many points do we get deducted? If yeah. One of us yeah. <laughs> I,
0: five points for each major buzz phrase that you repeat. You know, no. it is what it is. You know, like this, this thing is, it, look, we're, we're, we're going to talk about tech. Right today is about tech, and and we're going to have a fun time geeking out. I I'm I'm excited to have you on because this is a major issue. Floodings a really big deal all over the world. Whether you believe, well, I hope you believe the climate's changing because that's pretty pretty evident that the, that the climate has always changed ever since the creation of the planet Earth. The climate has changed. So if you don't believe the climate changes, then you're in complete denial of the history of the of, of the planet. It's always it's always the causes of that climate change that are that are uh, contested, not the fact that it's changing. But the, the a consequence has always been that places that used to not flood start flooding, and places that used to flood stop flooding, and water is not where we want it because it moves. Humanity has an—I'm in- I'm a, I'm a history nut, Juliet, and I really am. And, you know, history has a way of repeating itself. Human beings have a, have a have a historical pattern of following water wherever it goes. In fact, if you wind back to ancient India, like the very beginnings of India— you know, it's just a, such a fascinating study. It all developed around the river systems, and then as the rivers went, so did society. So, so water is this really deep, fundamental thing to human beings. And and you've built a company around water, and I think it's uh it's a really worthy topic. Before we get into that, I want to know a little more about you you because there's obviously insurance is a people business, uh, very, very deep relationships across this industry. And so I want to hear how somebody from Queensland has worked their way into being CEO and co-founder of an insure tech company. Walk me through where'd you grow up? Was it Wagga Wagga? Uh, no, just, uh, or was it I, I have a friend in Wagga Wagga. Not kidding. Amazing. I, I have a friend who lives in Wagga Wagga. And then I have another friend from Dabo and we jokingly call it Dabo Dabo, which makes him very upset. So he does not like being called Davo Davo. But beside the point, where were you born and raised? What did you think when you were a kid, what did you think you wanted to go do? And then what got you here?
1: Oh my gosh, wow. Love it. Okay. So yeah, I was born in Brisbane, Southeast Queensland, but sort of shortly after that, my parents moved to regional Southeast Queensland. So I grew up in this really small town named Boona and yeah, used to flood a lot there actually, like in in the wet season. Sometimes like when I was a kid, I'd be watching the school bus to come pick me up and you'd see it get to like water over the road and then turn around and, and go back to town. And we were just like, yes, like day off school, this is the best. So I'd always been a bit fascinated by climate, weather, thunderstorms, you know, flooding. But yeah, kinda also spent some time in by the time I was in high school, I was living in northern New South Wales near near Byron Bay. Did a lot of surfing. So always just been interested in like waves and like the coastal engineering piece as well. And yeah, when what did I think I wanted to do when I grew up? A range of things. Like I think I don't know, my mum was always really into gardening at one one stage. I thought I wanted to be like you know, work in a nursery and like plant trees. And then by the time I was 16, I was, I went skiing and I was convinced, like, I was like, I found it. I know what I'm going to do with my life. I am going to be a ski instructor. And I think, you know, I did a bit more research about it and people were like, yeah, it sounds fun, but I don't know if that's like a really good career choice. And I was like, wow, this doesn't pay as well as I thought. So it, it came to kind of like picking a course and I was really good at science, really good at maths, massive geek. And kind of after some talking with different career advisors, they were like, well, I think you should look at engineering. And I'd never really thought about it because I sort of perceived engineering to be about, you know, building structures and bridges. And I was like, no, that's really not me. But then I saw in these like, uni courses there was this environmental engineering course and I was like oh my gosh this has me written all over it like yeah it, it sort of sets you up to go down so many different paths like model the environment like rainfall you know runoff the flooding side all of this but also looking at systems and processes renewable energy it just sounded so fascinating so I was like I'm going to study that and then when I graduated yeah I came out and I did my thesis in renewable wave energy and as much as like renewable energy excited me in Australia there's not really many Jobs in that, especially when I graduated, so I was like, "Well, I'm just like really interested in this."
0: I'm work. seeing, well, I'm it, seeing a pattern is- here of you being interested in career paths that didn't have a lot of jobs.
1: It's true. Yeah, it's definitely a pattern.
0: (laughs) Did you do a gap year where you, because like I went to Whistler and Whistler was filled with Australia. Whistler was filled. Whistler Canada was filled with Australians. There wasn't a Canadian in the town. It was all Australians on gap year or gap year three, right? I mean, like sometimes they do two, three, four gap years. Did you do a gap year? We
1: love the snow in North America. I didn't do a gap year. I was just like, really, I was pretty driven. I was like getting through university to like get a good job and like, yeah, get my paycheck. But then I saved up later and it was my goal actually to go and ski in Canada. But. Yeah. I just did it with them. the company I worked for. I kind of chose them because they, they were a Canadian company first, like had hundreds of offices all over the world. And I actually got a chance to move to Canada with them and, and ski. I told them I was going for six months, but it ended up being four years. <laughs> I, I loved it so much. And yeah, bam, it was just like full of Australians. Oh, like,
0: it's all Australian. Aussies. It's like they've, they've invaded. It's a Commonwealth country. If you don't know much about the Commonwealth, it's the Queen's territories. And, and so you can, you can move fairly easily among Commonwealth countries. You can get a visa fairly easily. And so that's why a lot of, a lot of Australians end up going to Canada. I went to Banff. I, exactly. I, I, it's, I, went to, I spoke at a conference in Banff and spoke at a conference in Whistler. In both places, all Australians.
1: Amazing. Yeah, everyone who serves you coffee, dinner, likes, Aussies like, everywhere. Good eye. <laughs> I'm that's like,
0: great. did I go to Sydney? Where am I?
1: Hey, mate.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so let's keep talking. So you you got your degree and then what happened?
1: And then, so, yeah. You worked at this company in Canada? Modeled modeled a lot of floods, basically. I, yeah, did a lot of hydrology investigations. I mean, like, in Australia, lots of, like, soil moisture, drought, and and flooding rains. In Canada, a lot of, like, snowmelt-driven hydrology. Worked on projects for government, mining energy companies, one insurance project. Super interesting stuff. Got, like, yeah, over a decade experience. So, it was sort of, like, my domain. Like, it was my thing that I did in terms of flooding, but... It was actually probably two personal experiences that, that sort of bore me on this path to starting Floodmap because I never set out to like, say, I'm going to found a company. I think as a founder, sometimes to be as like, you know, crazy as as we are to start a company, you've got to really care about the problem you're solving. And for me, that was that was flooding. So in 2011 in Brisbane here, there was just this catastrophic flood like caused billions and billions in, in damage. I think it was over $6 billion just in the city. Flooded. Kind of 20,000 homes were inundated, 100,000 people without power kind of event. And my friend, she was living in this super affected place, goodnight. And, you know, this is like her house the flood went over the peak of her roof like, and she just had no idea that it was coming. So she kind of moved some things up on tables, but like ended up losing everything that she owned. And it it just like, it broke my heart going into her house to kind of clean up in the days after the flood receded. I was just like, we had a responsibility to do better. Like one, it was kind of pretty criminal that her house got built in this zone for whatever reason, but we should be giving more warnings. Like she, like it's crazy that we live in this world where You can order Uber Eats and see the pizza coming to your door. But when there's a natural disaster, you're basically left in the dark. And so then I was, yeah, two years later, moved to Calgary, Canada. And the same thing happened, like this catastrophic level flood, like $10 billion damage, at least like 100,000 people evacuated. All my friends texting me saying like, hey, Juliet, am I going to be affected? Should I evacuate? Should I move my car? What should I do? Because no one is telling them this. And and the reason is like, I really got to the heart of the problem, which made me go in this pursuit of, of flood map is that. The government agencies do an incredible job when it comes to meteorology forecasting to forecast the rainfall and hydrology forecasting to take that rainfall and forecast a peak river height. So you get this message saying, okay, the Brisbane River catchment is going to reach 5.5 meters. But unless you're a hydraulic engineer, it's meaningless to you. Like, is that, you know, to, to sea level? What's my house floor level? What's the Brisbane River? Do I live in the Brisbane catchment? Wait, what catchment do I live in? Like everyday people don't necessarily know all these metrics. And so it's crazy to give this really broad warning and expect people to know what it means. And so the next step to, if you were to give people a map to show them what area and what properties would be impacted, you need to do the next step, which is hydraulic modeling or, you know, hydraulic forecasting to turn that horizontal river into like a, sorry, the vertical river height into like a horizontal map. But previously, this has just been so computationally intensive, it hasn't been feasible and governments can't offer it. And that's what we built at Floodmap. We were just like, we're going to design a model that's built to run in real time so that before a flood, people can actually see like, hey, James, your house is going to be impacted or, you know, your site or your substation or your assets so that people can kind of prevent the loss before it happens. Some, not all. And preserve human life. I mean, ultimately. Yeah. So yeah, I kind of just like started, it was a hobby. Like I built this app in my spare time and then yeah, got got involved with my partner and co-founder, like kind of developing the code and prototyping. And then yeah, eventually we sort of, sort of. I think we showed it to some people from local government and they were like, you should start a business. Like people would be interested in this. And I was like, no, that's crazy don't know anything about business, but then we sort of thought about it some more and and ended up getting some seed funding through an accelerator program. And yeah, it's been a bit of
2: a journey since then.
0: Wow. That's awesome. Awesome. Rob?
2: Yeah. So I kind of want to pick up on that, Juliet but I, you know, I kind of specifically want to talk about, you know, how you relate to insurance. I know you guys are also working a lot with emergency managers and I imagine that's difficult, particularly now, right in the U S certainly some of the our response to the pandemic has been through FEMA, but yet yeah, you know we just started our, our hurricane season June first, etc. So maybe you can just talk about you, know, you. You kind of mentioned some of the challenges with government messages, but you know who are some of those key stakeholders that you work with, and and how is insurance involved, and and who are maybe some other major players outside of insurance that you guys work closely with?
1: Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Rob. So I I see ultimately like insurance as being like a huge piece of this puzzle because ultimately you know that. Flooding, it causes so much damage. In a, the US alone, Congress right now budgets $54 billion for hurricane and flood-related damage, which, like, that's a big number. And it's growing. The thing is, it's growing for two reasons. I'm glad I'm in the right, right place. And James wanted to check that I believe in climate change, which is good because, yeah, it's definitely making flooding more frequent and more severe, warmer oceans. We're seeing, like, increased hurricane, tropical storm depressions. But also, like, Development is growing, like populations are growing, so there's more infrastructure, more houses, and that means losses are climbing. And yes, this is impacting residents, it's impacting utilities. it's impacting you know the energy sector. but ultimately, it's impacting insurers. Like ultimately, who are the people that are paying out for these losses insurers? And so I, I think like it's a super key piece of the puzzle. I think ultimately, yeah, we'd love to have more and more government clients and this be a messaging app that can also save lives. But I think you know, with any startup, it's a journey, and we see the the loss prevention piece as a sort of easier piece to start with where we kind of build that trust and become basically the most trusted provider of predictive mapping in the world. And so, yeah, for, I mean, insurers, when you look at it, it's, it's actually really interesting. What we've learned from so many discussions is there's multiple pieces along the insurance value chain where there's a lot of interest in our technology. Obviously the the number one is loss prevention. And I think it's sort of a, a growing area. It maybe hasn't been a big focus traditionally, but when risk and exposure is climbing more and more. And, you know, there's these traditional methods of of risk transfer, but you're still getting this big exposure. The obvious thing is to sort of look at, okay, like, well, what can we do to prevent the loss and prevent the claim happening in the first place? So particularly that I think has been a real interest to some of the the big reinsurers and particularly in the commercial markets, you know, when you Have things like if it's like a a shop front, and they have 24 hours warning time to that their shop is going to be inundated, and they can move all their like electronics or mobile phones out. Maybe they've just saved a one million dollar claim just because they put some stuff in a car and drove it away. Like it's just crazy when you think how much of this damage is preventable. You know, like people can't move their house, but I think the World Bank is saying anywhere from 35 percent to 65 percent of flood damage is preventable with early warning signs. So there's a huge opportunity for for insurers to reduce those claims and financial losses. There's also a huge opportunity for them to just streamline the claims process itself and improve the customer experience in the the moments that matter. So if you're a you know insurance policyholder, you get a message from your insurer that it's going to flood and you that's an opportunity to safely leave with your family or save some stuff in your business to kind of minimize business interruption, I mean, you're with that insurer for life. As you said, James, insurance, it's all about relationships. And if you're, you know, you have like these two major touch points with an insurer when you buy the policy and when you make a claim, and if that experience in the claim is a really bad one, that's a, a key touch point to change insurer. And we've seen that happen a lot in Australia after big events is like people either love their insurer and stay for life or they'll, they'll change insurers. So insurers are seeing it as a really big value point to retain customers and even acquire customers to really build their brand as this trusted insurer, as well as like automate things like claims. So if you can see the flood events coming, there's been a big hurricane and you've automatically got this map where you can visualize your whole portfolio, how many of my policyholders have been affected, what location, how many resources do I need for claims? Where do we we triage? Where's the, the highest volume claims? It really adds a lot of efficiency and reduces costs in the claims process as well. So, yeah, I think insurance is a huge, huge part of this problem.
0: So, let's geek out for a minute. How does it work? <laughs> like, <laughs> are you using like ArcGIS in the background? Are you are you using a massive GIS database, and then you're then you're taking this massive amount of water and then doing volumetric calculations? I mean, just walk, walk me through the math and the computer science behind it.
1: Love it. Love geeking out. Okay, so I'll preface this by saying I'm not a software engineer, um, environmental engineer for sure, but uh, I'm not the one like writing code every day. I have like people much smarter in the company that that are doing that. The way it works, we, yeah, as you say, so it's all driven by spatial databases and it's powered by like tools like PostgreSQL and PostGIS QGS we use a lot too for visualization of the results and we are just ingesting like just millions and millions and millions of records of data across the US. We're ingesting 18,000 gauges of river height data every hour and running that through machine learning models. So there's basically two steps of modeling we do. We don't forecast the, the weather, we ingest that data. So we kind of ingest Weather on predictions of of rainfall, we put that into our hydrology models to forecast the river height. So this is like doing a simulation to work out, okay, what's the catchment characteristics? What's the area? How much of that rainfall is going to soak into the ground, how much is going to run off, then how high is the river going to get? We have this cool machine learning models that are like learning the relationship about all the gauges throughout the stream gauge network and learning from each other so that if one gauge goes out during an event, you can kind of still like predict all the ungauged parts of the catchment. And then that goes into... Those hydrology results go into our rapid hydraulic model. So we've, we've actually just, we're very excited to say we've just like developed a, a name for our rapid hydraulic model. It's called Dash 2D, Dynamic Automated Scalable Hydraulics 2D. Dash um, 2D. Because flood engineers have to have an acronym for everything. Otherwise, The next, like, ver- the
0: next version will be Dash 3D, then the next one will be Dash 4D, and the next one will be Dash 5D. <laughs> 5D. And then she'll <laughs> be on Dash 12D the next time we talk to her. Pretty much, pretty much. No, 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 no. Look, the amount of water that gets, gets absorbed into the ground is certainly highly dependent on how much impermeable, impermeable surface that's there. So, are you using satellite data to calculate impermeable surface or are you using just gross estimates based on population density and urbanization?
1: Yeah, a range of different factors. Yeah, definitely rely on a lot of uh, aerial imagery to understand different land use types, whether it's urban, forested, farming, etc. Because all of those, yeah, as you say, have different infiltration rates. And then a lot of kind of calibration or machine learning of models to just basically learn that relationship. So sometimes we don't necessarily tell the model exactly like what the surface is and therefore exactly what the infiltration is, but just like let the model learn, learn that relationship. We're doing a lot of exciting R&D on, on that front at the moment.
0: Couldn't you just measure input and output? you know gross measure of inches of rainfall over a specific acre or hectares or acreage and then look at your your river levels and then interpolate the the permeability of the surfaces between the two that is that another way to validate your model
1: exactly yeah so usually um and the u.s actually does have an incredible stream gauge network it's also pretty good in australia compared to some other countries where yeah they'll measure stream flow at certain points and usually pretty strategic points at like a catchment outlet and that's your kind of point for calibration. So you're essentially training the model with in historical rainfall data and maybe some evapotranspiration data, like how much of the water is being taken up by the plants and going up to the sky, the physical catchment characteristics, how large, what area, the steepness of the catchment, land use type, that sort of thing. And then training it on that measured stream flow, as you say.
0: So before I hand it back to Rob, who buys this from you and like what kind of like what kind of company buys this from you and what do they do with it?
1: Yeah. So, and probably to go back to your point, you mentioned ArcGIS earlier. So the, how they buy it, it's delivered via a data feed, like a web map service, web feature service, or kind of like API basically can connect our outputs of the rapid hydraulic model, which is a, usually like a vectorized polygon file that can like then land in their databases, something like ArcGIS, or even overlay on like a Google Maps or Mapbox product, like we can export a shapefile geojson or a kml really doesn't matter and then that way they get the most power out of it because they have the ability to overlay it over their insurance portfolio or over their kind of network of assets or infrastructure so who buys it insurers we certainly worked with insurers in australia and the u.s but also power utilities have been really interested we got a, a few inbound leads from power utilities in australia and so now we're kind of talking to quite a few power utilities in the US and they're super interested in it. I think for them, it's a big, I mean, public safety, number one, you got to know who, like which substations and power lines to switch off because you can't have power lines in in water, public safety issue. It's a huge problem. And then, yeah, also government cities, mining energy companies, but yeah, it's interesting a lot of the driving force for buying this product for those commercial entities too it all comes back to insurance because they've suffered flooding in the past. And if they've had an event where there's power mixing with water or they've lost their assets, what happens is they struggle to get insurance or their premiums take a massive hike. So we're really kind of working with all these industries together to ultimately yeah, find that solution. that's It's win-win-win for everyone.
2: Awesome. Rob? Yeah, that's awesome. So, Juliet, I know a lot of people. So, there's a couple of uh, of things that are kind of coming together, and I want you to help maybe kind of parse this out and particularly maybe differentiate what you guys are doing from flood map versus some other folks. So there's been a lot of interest in flood modeling over the last five to 10 years, both from startups and from some really large corporations. Uh, there's also a catastrophe models, right, that insurers and reinsurance really heavily rely on for these types of events. And so it can be very confusing to kind of know, well, what do I use for what and, and you know, what is complementary versus what is a competing product, et cetera. I believe when you and I were in Australia at the ANZIF and SureTech conference during your presentation, one of the things that you were really emphasizing is like knowing the catchments, knowing when the rain comes down, well, which catchment is it going to go into? And that isn't something that's typically kind of mapped or, or, or captured it can be very challenging right to capture accurately etc so maybe you can just talk about i guess you know help us sort through out all these different types of models and then where would i want to use flood map or, or what do you think kind of differentiate you from some of the other
1: yeah yeah sure rob it's yeah, you're right. There's a lot of solutions out there, and it is you know there's there's a lot of modeling technologies that have been used a long time, and there's a few different spaces. So I feel like I don't have a whiteboard here, so I'm going to do like lots of like hand motions to help explain this. But yeah, in the insurance sector, there's definitely these like cat, cat modeling firms, you know that. AIR worldwide, RMS, JBA, risk, these types of players. And they uh, typically use models that are known as like 2D finite difference models to, to model that hydraulics, which is really useful for flood hazard mapping. So amazing models, and they're definitely built for a purpose, great for flood hazard mapping, but they, they have a downside. So these models, they work by basically dividing up the land that you're simulating into like millions or, or thousands of different grid cells. And running the model over, you know, thousands of time steps The the lower you make the grid size. So say like a, a one meter cell has to have a finer time step than a 10 meter or 30 meter cell, because the calculations sort of have to be at a steady enough point that the model doesn't go unsteady. Anyway, the point I'm getting at is the incredibly computationally intensive. So to run one of these models for just one catchment of like 5,000 kilometers squared might take you like 600 hours at like a 10 meter resolution. And so what that means is these firms often to, to go and have a large scale, they need to increase the grid size to an acceptable runtime because you can't just have these models running for years so that often means for the cat models they're like typically like a 30 meter sometimes a 90 meter resolution and then you're kind of losing like some of the the accuracy but sometimes you know that's okay like it, it does mean you've got like a large scale solution. And then you've also got like the engineering consultants typically have done a lot of flood modeling, like doing flood modeling projects for FEMA and hazard mapping for cities and things. So they also use these 2D kind of finite difference type models. It's very much what I used to do in my previous career. So models like 2Flow, HECRAS, 2D, Mike, and same problem. And, and so the way kind of engineering consultants work is like, because flood modeling, it's so computationally intensive, takes so long to set up, can take like weeks or months to set up, you know, weeks months of simulation time so they'll often do just a small area like just a government local government flood study simulation and and these models are not really feasible for running in real time so what we developed and why it's different we're not a 2d finite difference model so we don't use the st Venant equations to like simulate continuity and momentum down to like a physical kind of step in each cell over each Time step. We sort of take a more high level approach and yet yeah, by implementing a lot of like big data automation and machine learning techniques, we're essentially able to sort of build a water surface, you know, in 3D um, across like a whole catchment scale in sort of anywhere from like seconds to three minutes where other models might take 600 hours. So we're getting sort of run speeds of like 10,000 times faster because of the new technology we're using. And so the interesting thing is we have made a new set of algorithms and um, approximations and simplifications when it comes to handling some of the physics behavior and the hydraulic behavior of the catchment. But the interesting thing in our research is that because our model is able to run much faster, it means we're able to decrease the resolution and run you know, a much smaller, essentially equivalent like cell size, if you like, down to like we've done sort of fifteen centimeters. Which ultimately is showing that actually in some places, even though some people might look at the two approaches and think ours is a bit more simplified, we're showing like in some ways it's outperforming and more accurate even than the traditionally considered very accurate approach. But we we so we developed this model very much for emergency management, knowing that just out in the market across the different flood models, they're all very focused on flood hazard mapping or infrastructure design no one sort of built a model that's really focused on that real-time instant simulation and that's what really sets us apart so the technology we developed it was sort of purpose-built for event-based modeling so not modeling things like the one in ten thousand or one in five hundred year flood but to model like there's a hurricane off the coast and it's going to hit in 24 hours what's the flooding going to be
0: awesome super cool what's what's i mean this is all really exciting stuff we need it badly, especially here at Houston is arguably one of the, you know, Houston and New Orleans. I'm, I'm from the New Orleans area. I live in the Houston area. Oh, wow. Two of the cities that have had the biggest problems because they're at sea level. And uh, now they tend to, they, they, they seem to be flooding more and more and more and more. Uh, the whole real estate market talks uh, when you buy a house or sell a house there, they talk about whether or not it was in the flood area the last time. And nowhere seems safe, right? Nowhere seems safe. And so I would say I'm I'm just curious as to, like, what's the next big thing? Like, this is a big deal. Giving them a KML feed they can bring into all their own system and do their modeling. Like, that's really what you're – you're a data subscription company, right? Yeah. And so they're subscribing to your data feed. They pull the data feed into their own software. Then they they use it. And it's different than the 100-year – I mean, this is the – This is the crazy thing, you know, the hundred-year floodplain, the five hundred-year floodplain. The, you know, I mean, people talk about that, but I don't think even understand exactly what it means as far as probabilities go. And it seems to be fairly meaningless because hundred-year hundred-year floods seem to happen more often, and so they don't seem like hundred-year floods by the definition of the phrase. So you've already made major headway in creating a technically distinct product from the market, more accurate. You're leveraging machine learning and uh, a whole bunch of data sources and a uh, whole bunch of math, a whole bunch of computer science. I mean, you're you're leveraging every tool at your re, at your resources, and you're delivering far more accurate data feeds that carriers are making better decisions on probably premium and rates, right? Like whether or not to underwrite it, and if so, at what rate. What's the next big thing in flood mitigation and mapping, though? Like where where are we going to? Are are we go, are we going to a place where you can simply key an address in, hit your data feed, and Make a binding writing decision on the spot. Like, are are we are we going to dramatically reduce the amount of time for underwriting? Are we going to start getting into prevention using your data, making recommendations on what can be done to fix it, like that? Because thats really seems to be the the big thing. I was a city councilor in my city, and city councils don't, and city councils and flood districts don't exactly, or river districts, river river authorities, as we call them in Texas, don't exactly know what buttons to push to fix the problem right so are, are you going to go that far where you start saying by the way cities if you want to lower your your iso rating you want to lower your flood rating here's the three things you can do based on your geography and our modeling that'll actually help fix this rather than you know right now it's all it's a lot of it's emotional you know and, and, and the, the I've seen the presentations because they make them you know they 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 take their best guess at what would mitigate flooding but they don't really know you know, they don't really know because a lot of the recommendations end up not working. So, mm-hmm. so what, what's, what's the next step? Are you going to start working with municip- municipalities and river districts and start making recommendations on how to fix this stuff?
1: Hey, I, I love this. I feel like we could just like talk all day about this There's so much I want to talk about because it's a really great question. And I don't know that there's an easy answer. It's a, a really complicated problem. I think, yeah, ultimately building more flood resilience. It's so multifaceted. There's things that need to happen where I'm a big, big believer that, yeah, there is a real physical kind of infrastructure problem and, you know, like consultants or, you know, solutions like flood map that can kind of offer that rapid real time and scenario based kind of flood modeling can help inform better development planning and things. But It's really complicated. Like in some places, you can build a flood levee, but then you know that might protect one side of the river, but make it worse on the other side or increase velocities. and And so, I think it's just this complicated thing where so much of humanity we've settled on floodplains next to rivets because we need water, like humans need water. But by nature, we're always going to be exposed to flooding from the river or maybe from you know the coast, like living near water, it's just, it's sort of going to be a part of life. And I think, yeah, it's a, definitely there's smarter development choices that can happen, things like, you know, better planning where rather than having these fancy, like, Houses on the river—that's perceived to be this like status and beautiful thing to have. Like, we need to have like the golf course on the river, the parks on the river, and the houses on the hill. Like, there was this there was this town that flooded in uh, Lismore in New South Wales, and I saw someone do like some drone footage after the flood event, and they took off, and and you could see the drone going up, and I'm like, oh, they're on the golf course, and I was like, oh wow, the golf course is on the top of the hill, and then they fly over the central business district where all these like the McDonald's, the petrol station, the whole city town is like underwater but the golf course is high and dry like just these like logical planning I think I think that definitely needs to change 100% like I'm really passionate about that where I think historically we maybe just didn't have enough data and this this planning has been done but schemes like um, property buybacks or where in Australia there's some insurers that are doing some really exciting stuff in North Queensland where homes are affected by cyclones hurricanes if they you know make a claim the insurer is kind of helping them invest more money if they will make resilient sure. infrastructure changes to their home or so raise raise the cyclone. house up
0: yeah like raise the house up exactly yeah
1: so but, there's these physical things i think is one definitely a key part of the problem
0: but if it flies in the face of what aussies want i mean i i i took a i took a boat ride up the river in bris, bris vegas you know i went to bris vegas got on the boat <laughs> And, and we're cruising up the river, and all the houses of all the Aussies are just lining the river. And I, I did find out something interesting. I asked, I asked the river, the the boat captain, I'm like, why is no one in the water? Like, you know, in Texas, everybody be in the water, water skiing and playing around and swimming. And he goes, hey, now, mate. Uh, it's bull sharks here. They just they they kill you yeah, real it. fast. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Like, like there's so many things that if it's not the floods, if it's not the crocodiles, it's the bull sharks that will rip you to shreds. So no one's in the river anyway. So they can't go swim okay. in the water. So you might as well. What's the point? What's the point? Like literally, everyone was on the water and they can't get in the water because they'll die anyway. Yeah, it's uh, pretty what, funny. I
1: actually I have been wakeboarding in the Brisbane River touch wood luckily didn't get eaten by a bull shark so people do do it but yeah the bull sharks are a real thing they're really aggressive
0: oh yeah there's yeah. been
1: a lot of shark attack
0: especially during any you know in right now it's mating season and i was like oh oh crikey you know i was like like where's steve Irwin? you need it now you'll see here the the male bull shark swims up on the female and they're all where oh, it's
2: right.
0: Too much. All right, Rob, last oh qu- last question. Bring us home. Let's wrap it up, Rob. What you got?
2: Yeah, I want to save everybody from your uh... Shane Mott so, um, hey, Queensland. You can call me <laughs> Motto. So, Julia, I'm going to kind of share with our, our listeners uh, a little, little in secret, and that is that we've kind of made a, a resolution that every time we get together at Introtech Connect in Las Vegas every year, we're going to go out and, and grab notches. It's like an annual tradition now that we're going to do with you and the, the flood map team. So, you know, I, I don't know if we're going to be in Vegas this year or not, mm. right? But, you know, I kind of think about like, okay, where, where you've been, I know you've won a ton of pitch competitions. Like you said, you know, you guys just kind of started out started like, you know, you and Ryan and you, you built this great company. And so maybe you just, I guess, take a moment to reflect on, you know, the journey so far, but I'm really interested in kind of then, you know, what's what's next for FloodMap. So we talked about the kind of future of flood modeling, but I'm kind of interested in, you know, where you you think you're going to go as a company. You've been growing, you're doing tremendous. It's so uh, wonderful to see your progress over these years so yeah, just kind of, you know, take a moment to reflect on where you've been. And uh, yeah, what's what's next for Floodmap?
1: Yeah, such a man, I, I get so inspired thinking about this sort of stuff. It really has been a journey. Like, actually, I think back to this super key part of our journey was like, I think it was way back in, like, it must have been 27, end of 2017, maybe. And so I like connected with Rob on on Twitter. And I'm like, hey, you know, like, we don't know you, we're these random people from Australia, we're working on this flood thing and we want to understand like if like insurance industry would be interested in this, like do you have some time to chat? And Rob was so kind, he was like, yeah, like I'm doing a a road trip like I'll get you on the phone in the car and I'll tell you what I know about the insurance industry which turns out was like a great deal and we learned so much from him but we just think back to when it was just the two of us just trying to like validate if there was even a market for a solution like this to now you know just recently last year we closed a seed funding round and we're now kind of a company of 10 people and you know trading with like selling our solution in the US and Australia and I think what's next is really growing that uh, steadily and sustainably but really staying kind of niche with the problem of flooding. Like people ask us a lot, like, are you going to do bushfire, earthquake, what's next? And we say, no, like we want to partner with those people, but the flood problem is so technically specific and I could nerd out about it all day. It requires a lot of resources. So we're going to stay really specific but go broad. So we definitely want to take the solution into Europe, to Southeast Asia, to a lot of countries that like, I, we get a lot of queries and especially around insurance um, interest out of like Singapore for countries like there's a big interest for this in Japan, India, Bangladesh. There's so many places that suffer from flooding that really need our solution. So slowly growing the company and ultimately having kind of some global offices like yeah North American headquarters maybe like a a Singapore kind of headquarters maybe a, a Zurich headquarters or something like that so that we can ultimately serve global markets and then kind of more essentially more products and more features so right now like we our big focus is on this sort of like event-based modeling, like really specific on loss prevention, really specific on claims. But ultimately, we we think there actually is this whole other opportunity to go into that flood hazard modeling space, which may have like way bigger applications on getting more accurate kind of underwriting pricing, but also for local governments for that development planning for reducing future decisions that are putting people at risk. And I think, you know, in Australia, there's like a a big conversation that goes on all the time. And I think the same in in the US between the insurance industry and and FEMA or the, you know, government agencies that are doing this mapping where sort of insurers are just having to take so much of the financial hit, even though it's not their decision, like where the buildings are built. Like they're not land planners. They can't decide where someone builds their house. They just have to price the risk. But in some regions, because flood is getting more frequent and more severe like flood insurance or just insurance in general is becoming more and more expensive. So, you know, people feel like they, they can't have the coverage. And so there's this big discussion about collaborating more and saying like, it's it's not one person's responsibility. It's like governments have to work with insurers to lower the risk, to make more affordable premiums for people. And I think like we really fit into that solution to help both those industries come together and give them the data to collaborate and yeah, ultimately find a better kind of insurance and, and a better, more resilient outcome for everyone.
2: Awesome. Yeah, I love that vision Juliet. And you know, one of the things that gives me a lot of hope is in Florida, you know, I was hearing cases where developers wanted to build new houses like right on the Gulf of Mexico, but people wouldn't going to buy them because the insurance is going to be 20, 30,000 a year. Yep. And so they've actually moved them inland like a half mile. They're leaving the wetlands there to be that natural barrier from the hurricane, right? And flooding and and so to your point like Insurance actually can drive proper valuing of your green infrastructure, right? And kind of keeping some of those areas that have always been that natural protection, right, for for centuries. And people know it's valuable, but it's always been really difficult to put a price on that. Well, now you can. And what you're ta- kind of talking about, maybe you can say and exactly to James's point, right? Now you can go to those local planning authorities and say you don't want to zone this for residential, right? You want to keep this here, but you can put it here, et cetera. So I, I just love the vision and, and where you guys. Are. Towards.
1: Yeah. Oh, thank you so much,
0: Rob. Yeah, insurance drives behavior all the time, doesn't it? I'm a pilot. I can tell you this: the Federal Aviation Administrative may set the rules, but the insurance company tells me what I'm going to do. And, <laughs> and so you know, it's 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 very it's very interesting. I, I I'm always concerned about the FAA, but I'm really concerned about what my insurer thinks. And uh, and so I spend a lot more time focused because they they react instantly. You know, it takes years for municipalities and federal agencies to react to changes in reality. It takes ideally days or weeks for insurers to, you know, they they cut off writing in a the market, they re-rate the market, they re-rate the individual, they re-rate the risk. You know, they do it quickly because if they don't, they'll get a they'll get in really bad trouble. And so that's why it's always interesting. Juliet and I love looking at when I'm looking at historical documents and like Eric Larson's one of my favorite history writers. I don't know if you've ever read him. Devil in the White City was his first really big book that hit. I haven't. Oh, oh, read it, read it, read it. He wrote a great, great book called, that you would love, called Isaac Storm, and it's about the the the, the great hurricane and flood that wiped out Galveston, Texas in 1901, yeah. and so... Oh
1: my gosh, I definitely need yeah. to read this. Yeah. I'm so yeah. curious. But, wow. But,
0: so for all of you out there, if you've never read a book by Eric, E-R-I-K, Eric Larson, He's the best history writer I've ever read, and um, probably number one. And the number two is Dan Carlin for me. I love Dan Carlin and his hardcore history podcast. But if you look at insurance records, they they always tell you what was really going on. Like the I don't know if I mentioned this before, Rob, on another show the the uh, the rebels that threw the tea in the harbor in Boston, yeah, or that they were actually smugglers and and they they weren't they weren't actually really hardcore patriots. They were actually really ticked that they're smuggling. Gig was up because the the the, the king was going to actually waive his stamp tax, and so they mm-hmm. they went and dumped tea in the harbor. That was the Boston Tea Party. It was actually a bunch of smugglers, and the only reason they know they were smugglers is uh, Malcolm Gladwell went uh, along with some others and pulled the insurance records because Lloyd's was insuring the shipments that were coming across. So they they compared the customs bills to the to the insurance. Register And they were completely different, which means they were completely – they were lying about what they were bringing over. And that, that's what they say. You, you'll lie to the government all day long, but you'll never lie to your insurer because if you have a loss, you want it covered. So insurance records are really some of the best ways to make policy decisions. And, and you couldn't be in a better sweet spot right now, Juliet. So I hope everyone will go check out your company and consider rethinking the way they look at flooding and and flood data. It's floodmap.com. That's F-L-O-O-D-M-A-P-P, two Ps, floodmap.com. And this has been Juliet Murphy, our delightful Queensland resident from Australia. Juliet, thank you for being on the show today.
1: Hey, thank you so much, James. Thanks, Rob. It's uh, really appreciated that you had me on and and really great to speak with you guys this morning.
0: Rob, always good to see you, my friend. Thank you for joining and for uh, continuing to introduce us to a lot of your great friends around the world.
2: Absolutely, James. And I know we're running out of time, but a quick news note this week. Lemonade came out with their S1 filing, big IPO. I've seen a lot of people saying they're going to short the stock when it comes out. Yep. But any quick thoughts, guys, on that?
0: You know, when you're when classic soft bank company, right? When you bleed cash, the, the public markets are not responding very well. And so it'll be interesting to see how the public markets respond to a to a cash burning machine that is an insurance carrier because this will be this will be a new one you know they're they're used to seeing these claims of being lower than you know, gross loss ratios and, and net loss you know they're they're used to seeing a much different number than what they're seeing in that S one and so I I think it, I, I personally Rob don't think the market is ready for rapid growth high loss companies but I don't think that lemonade or other public company companies that want to go public there's one in the construction space Procore they don't have a lot of time left because they've raised so much money and you know softbanks not handing out any more money. They've they've pulled back on their commitments, right? So I, I think they, they have to go public. They're gonna they're going to sell shares. The question is at what price? And certainly Certainly, I'm not buying any IPO stock of a company that's not profitable when they go public. Just saying for myself, that's my my own opinion. Mm.
1: uh,
0: Juliet, I welcome your opinion on that.
1: Oh, it's so interesting, and I think it's just going to be really interesting to just watch this one, especially after the the WeWork IPO. Like, I think uh, Lemonade, what they're doing, like 67 million in revenue, raised 408 million to get there, or something, and and two million, two billion valuation. I sort of think the market right now, like it's people are looking at things a bit more conservatively right now. And it's a bit of going back to basics, as you say, like looking at, you know, are they profitable? What's their revenue? What's their expenses? Like how much do I actually think these shares are worth? And that's what I'm, I'm going to pay. Like it's less about that speculation and more kind of going back to basics. I, yeah, probably my personal self, I'm not like rushing to go and buy lemonade shares as soon as it hits the market. It's just my personal, I'm just going to kind of sit back and watch. Like I think they're really brave and good on them for going to IPO right now because it's a yeah it's an interesting time.
0: Yeah, and they and they've got uh, a good and keep, just keep in mind I love the user experience of Lemonade. I have friends and employees that that have that that use them as their insurance carrier. I've been through the process of applying for like I love the I love what they've done. I love what they've done. I'm just saying I'm not sure the market's ready right now and that's the the challenge they did publish an article May sixth of two thousand nineteen, saying nearly there. This was on the Lemonade website. Why why Lemonade steadily improving loss ratio is important. You can go read that. That's their own literature they published. And then of course you can go read INS NERDS InsuranceNerds uh, Title from Nick Lamparelli, who who I who you and I both know said, "Don't believe the hype, the Lemonade story." <laughs> and so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of, of, of writing out there on both sides of this. The beautiful thing about the market is that it's brutally honest. It is brutally honest. So the day they go public, the market will tell you, and really the day after, you're going to find out what the market really thinks about high growth, high cash burn companies, and, and in particular, if SoftBank is going to have any more runaway hits, that's the that's the really big question because their model has been called into serious question. So, Rob, thank you. Uh, I appreciate you bringing it up because it's impossible not to mention that one, and uh, that one almost slipped by me. So, thank you for for mentioning that. And and we, look, I'm rooting for the best for them. Remember, I want I want insure tech companies to be successful. I want their IPOs to go well. I'm just worried about the uh, the public markets and how they're reacting to these. So, we'll see, you, Rob.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I might dip my toe in the water a week after it goes public. Yeah, we'll get, see if it gets beaten down bad like enough.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, I dipped my toes in the water on Lyft the day it went public. So that was not a fun swim. And so uh, luckily I kept my, my investment small. And then when Uber went, I was like, I'm going to wait. And that went <laughs> badly pretty pretty quickly. And then I, went, and I was like, okay, it's just not a time to buy IPO stock right now. I just need to, I need to sit out of this. So,
2: so I have to make my bad dad joke at this appropriate time and say, are you <laughs> underwater on those investments? <laughs> <laughs> oh, love it, Dude, so my 13 year old, <laughs>
0: I just got out of the car. I, I just made like two really, really sweet, awesome dad jokes with my 13 year old like an hour ago. And she told me that I was super on my dad joke game. So,
1: nice! Wow, just I love that. Nice. She said that. Just, what, what
0: was your dad joke? Oh, I don't even remember what it was. It was just something. It was something horrifically, you know, punny. You know, it's always it always involves a pun, and she thought it was. Uh, she laughed and then patted me on the shoulder and said it was cute. You know, she. <laughs> She tried oh, to make so me feel. Funny. She tried to make me feel better about myself. She's she's a she's a sweetheart. So, all right. Well, onwards you, and girl. upwards. This has been the InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge at jbknowledge.com. It's all about technology transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host James Benham, jamesbenham.com, and my co-host Rob Galbraith, endofinsurance.com. com. Thank you to Jim Greenley, our podcast producer, Kara Daltonaro, our creative producer, and thank you for joining us today. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next time.